Let's bow in prayer. Our Father in heaven, it is because of the truth that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus that we are able to gather here today. We thank you for this, the first day of the week, and the gathering of your body locally to submit themselves to the truth of the Bible, your word, and to encourage one another in obedience. Lord, thank you for this gift you've given us. May we make full use of it. We pray for other churches that are meeting similarly this morning. Lord, we ask that you forgive our sins, that you focus our attention on what we are to learn today, that you would free us from distractions, but that you would allow us to submit ourselves, problems and all, our cares, our worries, and may your word do the adjustment necessary to make us useful to your kingdom, to make us less like ourselves and more like you. Thank you again for this day, our time together, and the prospect of, of learning your word. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. And you may be seated. It is good to see each of you and welcome to church on Sunday, be that here in this room or uh, attending via live stream or some other uh, place in the building at, at any time on any Sunday. We've got numerous people volunteering in the nursery or children's church. And uh, having said that, I would like to thank many of you for your response to the invitation last week for help with Awana. We've still got some positions open that we need to fill, but we're in a much better spot this week than we were last week, and uh, the idea of starting Awana on time is uh, well within reach, and we praise the Lord for that, but thank you for letting Him use you. Uh, today, we're going to be studying Esther chapter 7, and if you've already opened your Bibles to that, uh, I, I'd like to to ask that you put a finger there or use your ribbon if your Bible has one and then turn with me to Psalm chapter 1. I want to use Psalm chapter 1 as um, a sounding board, as it were, of an eternal principle that plays out in the world God created under His sovereign rule. And that is the first of the psalmists' uh, psalms in that collection. We'll read this, and then we'll pray. And then we'll read chapter 7 of Esther as we study our way through it. Most of the time we read it up ahead of time, and uh, it's there in front of our face. But because of the drama of the story, I think it might be more uh, exciting, perhaps meaningful to read it a chunk of a time as we take it a step at a time. But this is Psalm 1, and I'm reading from the ESV, though I understand many of you may have committed this to memory, and um, it will sound a little different than King James. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, 
he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is God's Word. Let's pray and ask for help. Father in heaven, with our Bibles open, we ask you to teach us. We ask that you help us learn, and we ask that you help us be obedient to what we understand. Thank you again for this time. May we see it as of eternal significance. I ask this in your precious name. Amen. Well, if I were to ask if any of you knew Sir Robert Alexander Watson Watt, I would wager maybe one or two, but most probably do not know that name. Uh, The sir at the beginning means he at one point in his life had been knighted. Um, You're probably more familiar with his invention, but he started his career as a radio physicist. And when World War II was becoming more and more apparent that it's going to involve the world, he was asked to weigh in on the possibility of this rumored death ray that the Nazis had developed. He gained popularity with his opinion that that was not physically possible and then later managed to correctly and uh, helpfully with radio waves bounced off of moving aircraft know when the enemy was coming. In fact, this was indispensable for the Battle of Britain. The man developed radar and changed the world and Back when uh, wartime inventions were paid, he was one of the highest paid Britons for such an invention. But as the story goes, in his 60s, while driving his car in Canada, he was stopped for speeding by means of radar. (laughs) And as the story goes, his wife tried to inform the officer of whom... They were ticketing, and that it wouldn't be possible without his work. Didn't do any good. He still paid his $12.50. He wrote a poem about it, but I'll, I'll save you that. Let me read you another verse. This is a proverb. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. Now, I don't know that this Sir... Alexander Watson Watt is the best poster boy for this type of proverb that you may suffer at the hands of your own trap. But Haman the Agagite surely would be. Now, I don't think that this man designed radar for any other purpose than to protect oneself in all-out war. But Haman set a trap for someone for his harm, purposefully. And not every hole that's dug or rock that's moved always falls back on or one falls into. But if it's a trap, if it's purposed ill will, oftentimes it does. So when we get to chapter 7, the book of Esther, it's another day, another banquet, and another promise by the king to give Esther her request up to half of the kingdom. 
And once again, by way of the storyteller's use of narrative and literary device, we, the readers, know more than the characters at this point. We know the backgrounds. Most of us know what's going to happen. But this stage is set for a massive amount of revelation and resolve. You have, you have a problem that needs resolve, but there's a lot of information that's necessary for that resolution to take place. Information that these people do not have access to yet. Xerxes, the king, still does not know that Esther is a Jewess. Esther cannot know how the king will react once he does learn that information. Nor is she, Esther, aware of Haman's plot against Mordecai, though she probably knows about his tour around the square in the king's robe on the king's horse and with Haman proclaiming this is what happens to the man the king delights to honor. But Haman is probably just as oblivious as the king as to Esther's relationship to Haman. Or Mordecai, excuse me. Um, so there's a lot that they don't know about. Stage is set. Something has to happen. But the task itself, and we've been building up to this for weeks. Esther has to change the law that has sentenced her and her people to death. But that law has been put forward by the second in command who used the kingdom's ring to sign it himself, but in the king's name. And it also benefits the royal treasury at half a year's tax revenue. So not only is this a big ticket item, but it happens to have been put forward by number two, and number one doesn't really know much about it because he trusted number two to handle it. So let's begin reading. But the way the chapter break happens, it's a little awkward most of your paragraphs and even chapter headings might divide chapter 6 by chopping off verse 14. Well, let's start at chapter 6, verse 14, and read into chapter 7. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So stop right there. The feast had been prepared, but it was the second feast. If you recall... She had invited them at the beginning, and, uh, well, what do you want? Well, come tonight, after she entered the king's presence, and he asked, what do you want? Come to a feast tonight. Okay, what do you want? Well, let's have a feast tomorrow night, and I'll tell you. So, two times he had offered, and two times she had deferred to answer. And then there was this business about Haman wanting to kill Mordecai, got up early to figure it out, king couldn't sleep. The drama was thick at that point. He's there early in the morning to ask permission to kill Mordecai, and the king's been up all night listening to how great a guy he was and wants to honor him. And it was after this humiliating parade where Haman honors the man he wanted to kill, he's at his home telling his family, and at that point, he's quickly whisked away. He's late for the feast. So the king's there, Esther's there, Haman's there. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, just to remind us, this is separated from the prior day's feast. As they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. 
And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Now, this is the third time. I don't, I don't know if you can put yourself into these shoes by means of recalling a situation where you had to ask someone a delicate but important question. How many times did you chicken out? Or uh, let's say you pick up the phone back when those were attached to the wall with cords. And if you had a really long cord, you could drag it into another room and shut the door and kind of pinch the cord between it for some privacy. You get up the guts to ask a girl out on a date. But how many times did you get the phone, pull it through the door, and then put it back on the hook? There's, there's something to be said for timing and the right moment. And she has waited. And now is the time. But it's the third time. So on the other side of this, you've got the man who, the moment he saw her, walk into his presence. Something's up. What is it that you want? I'll grant your request. Well, I'll tell you tonight. Okay. What's on your mind, Esther? I'll tell you tomorrow night. The third time, it's... Esther, we've eaten. It's been great. We're drinking wine. I've got to know. What is it that you want? And just the same as he said before, up to the half of my kingdom. So in verse 3, and her only hope is to uncover the villainy of her enemy, the treachery that has to be exposed. Something has to break out. Knowledge that is hidden must be in the open for this to work. Verse 3, then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. So we finally read of Esther's moment. It's out. She has spoken her peace as far as the actual contents of the request. Now she's going to go on to elaborate in verse 4, but the cat's out of the bag. And it basically is this. My request is my life. And the life of my people. Now of all the things that he might have expected her to say, I'm pretty sure this was not one of them. I'm in danger. My life is in jeopardy. I, I, I'd like for you to give me my life. I'd just like to survive and my people. That's what is said. Verse 4. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Those are the actual words from the text of the edict. Those were first Haman's words. They were written down into law. She repeats them verbatim. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. All right, what does this mean? There's a lot tucked away in verse 4 as far as it's amplification of what is asked in verse 3. For one thing, she couldn't have more identified with her people at this point. That has been her secret, right? There's no way for her to tie herself any more tightly to the Jewish people than to say, if I live, they live. If 
they perish, I perish. But that's the way that this goes. Um, if they were destroyed, she'd be destroyed, spared, she's spared. But notice what she doesn't say. She doesn't mention the word Jew. Now, she may have, but as far as the record, and the way the story goes, as the storyteller told it, that's left secret. Same way that Haman, when he put the edict together in the first place, he didn't mention Jewish people. He just mentioned a certain people who were different, and it wasn't in the king's best interest to let them live. He needs to destroy them. And all the spoils of having killed them, I'll pay you, and that'll take up for the missing tax revenue. Let's keep moving. In fact, let me go ahead and give you the first point. Esther comes clean. We'll have three of them. We'll use these to organize the material. It's not that... Uh, I've, I've, all the commentators use different ways to talk about this. Uh, I liked one. Their opening point was Esther spills the beans. And, of course, that gets the point across, I think. But it's a little less elegant. Some said Esther comes out. That's something we throw around contemporarily here in culture. But Esther comes clean. Not that there's a scandal necessarily for her to admit to, but she has been keeping a secret for years. And now that secret is out. And she has to divulge that secret in order to make the ask if the others are going to be saved along with her. Notice her approach in coming clean. The same two ifs are used here as in the other two times. She always says, if I found favor in your sight and if it pleased the king. That's acknowledging a relationship between them. I have found favor in your eyes. You did choose me among all those in the harem. I do wear the queen's crown. But if it please the king, I want this to be that you want this. So that, that's the same as it's been all along. But there's a third if added in here as well. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. So Esther's request, if you put these pieces together... Try to tease out the contents of, or the basis or argument. It was humbly delivered to please the king if I have found favor in your eyes. It was reasonably important. I'll get to this in a second, but you tell me if it's reasonable to ask a man that you continue living. And in a moment, she's going to talk about how if it were an issue of free or slave, I wouldn't bring that to your attention. But this is life or death. So she has reasonability on her side. She's not making up some petty argument over something that's not worth his time. And then also, it's respectfully submitted. Our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. What she's saying here, and you know this is against things that she knows, that others might tell her, forget all that. You, you, you owe them no respect. They're not respectable. She knows that the king is an arrogant tyrant. She's closer to him in some ways than others. 
at least as far as women go, she knows that Haman is a fool. She's seen it with her own eyes. She knows that what happens in that empire is basically at the whim of the king's notions, sober or drunk. But she respects this institution known as power because at the moment she really doesn't have much to say about any of it as far as any measurable control. Uh, One point you could add here is when one makes an appeal before the empire of the world. Remember that? This is not the kingdom of heaven we're talking about. This is the world's most powerful empire. One has no choice but to appeal to the empire's own terms. And as Christians, we find ourselves in the precarious spot of making an appeal to a lost world in order to get ahead or save oneself. It puts one in a horrible situation at times. Esther couldn't simply appeal to the king's sense of right and wrong and point out the evil of mass murder because he's the one that let another guy sign the order for that mass murder. Genocide was fine with him. So you can't really implore him on the basis of a moral code that's lacking in his character. So she has to use other means in order to get what she wants. But what she did, she did humbly, reasonably, and respectfully. And she was heard. Now, we, we talked about how the, the basis of this book and why it's in the Bible is not to extract moral references from it. It tells us more about God and His plans to save His people than it does about morality because a lot of that morality gets bent in a lot of directions we would never want it to go. But this is good stuff here. You can learn from this. If you want to teach your kids how to make a respectful, humble appeal reasonably, you can teach them to do like Esther did. I mean, it's almost as if this generation has learned to excel in overestimating their understanding on hot-button issues that they learn from blogs and the Internet and justify their anger against a world whose ocean's too dirty or whatever else. And they don't have a job and they don't have an education and they live with their parents and and everything's just an absolute wreck as far as their little life goes. But they're an expert on what everybody else's problem is. That's not humble. That's not respectful. It, It absolutely throws institutions away as if we should tear all those things down. Having really no understanding of the fact that even in this oppressive world we live in, the average American uh, pays about between six and ten thousand dollars worth of taxes. This person would say highway robbery. Well, what do you get for that money? Roads to drive on, police to keep you safe, uh, an internet that lets you have anything you want at your doorstep the next day. You know, all all of these structures are put in place by those institutions that are so bad. Common grace has us in much better situation than we might think. What is Esther doing in a much worse situation than we are? Humbly, respectfully, and reasonably taking her case to a man who can, with just one stroke of a pen, end all their lives. This is quite an act right here and it's impressive 
You almost want to say, good for Esther. Well, there's the sovereignty of God behind the whole thing, too. Rather than get distracted, let's, let's keep reading. What she had done at this point, though, when we get to verse 5, is she had made the king very angry. And that's precisely what she needed to do. So that when she reveals the threat, the king's anger can attach itself to an enemy. Rather than just give him plenty of time to weigh out, all right, which is the least path of least resistance? Do I want to undo a law which I will, will ruin my reputation, or do I just get another queen? I've gotten another queen before. I can do it again. No, she wants him hot, angry, and then provide the outlet for the anger. Look at verse 5. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. So I think it's clear enough to read into the story all the uh, volume and the red face and the bulging veins in the neck of King Xerxes. Who is he? Where is he? Tell me his name and tell me his whereabouts. And it's easy for Esther to just say, it's him and he's sitting right next to you. That's the way that the whole banquet had been set up to begin with. We don't need to guess how Haman responded. It says he was terrified before the king and the queen. He knows his goose is cooked. Now some of us like this sort of thing when the bad guy gets it. And we've waited, what, three weeks to hear this man's hanged. But we spent three weeks talking about how there's part of Haman that lives in all of us. And at the point you realize you're cheering for your own destruction, the fun's kind of over. So we'll hang on to that here toward the end and look at it from another angle. And it might be that uh, we look at it differently than we've looked at it before. Verse 7, the king arose in his wrath. So he gets up. And from his wine drinking. Now, is that a good combo? Wrath and uh, intoxication. What do they use for uh, driving while intoxicated? DWI. This is uh, strolling in the garden while intoxicated. He went to the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. So this second-in-command who knows the king pretty well knows exactly what he sees in his face and is the reason for his, his being terrified. So point number two, the king takes a walk. One, Esther comes clean. Number two, the king takes a walk. And this is tough here because as information is coming out, not only is... Esther, Jew, but Haman's the enemy, and there's more to come out. Too much for the king at the moment. He takes a walk, and these two are together. But he is most surely on the horns of a dilemma, Haman, that is. He can't very well follow the king into the garden. That wouldn't work. He can't very well turn the opposite direction and run as fast as he can. He'll surely be arrested. And it's probably not a good idea to stay in a room alone with the queen. 
And you say alone, there's probably attendance there. They were, but it's almost like they don't count. He's in a bad way. Question could be asked, what is the king doing in the garden? Is he cooling off? Is he thinking his way through his horns of a dilemma? Was he worried about Esther and her people? Uh, Did he just need time to think? I don't know. And the story doesn't say. But it seems that if one thing's for sure, the king's going to do what's best for the king. So I think the king is out there contemplating the ramifications to his reputation as to which move he makes. The real problem is this. That man who is a foe and an enemy, a wicked Haman in his queen's estimation, used his ring to sign that law. And it's a law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. That was their way of saying that the king never makes a mistake. He's never wrong. So they can't just erase the law. And in the end of the book, spoiler alert, they only make a new law that allow the Jews to defend themselves. And he outfits them handsomely to do so. That's the workaround. But at this point in the story, he's trying to figure out how he rids himself of this man who has lied to him and put him in this position. He's mad about that. And then this whole business about Esther. So he's got to get rid of him. But how does he get rid of him? Because no one knows this information. And the more information he tells, the more his understanding is put into question. So what are you here for, king, if you just hand your ring to number two to do all the stuff that has your name on it but shouldn't have been done? Then either we need another king or another number two but this isn't working this is a problem but it's it's dramatically solved when he walks back into the room look at verse (coughs) 8 excuse me and the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch Where Esther was. The king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Now, this is masterful political theater, but almost in the blink of an eye. Um, several things going on, but here's what's interesting, the way the story is told, the words that are used by the storyteller. The word fall, same word falling in verse 8, was used by Haman's wife, Zeresh, previous to verse 14 where we started. After the big parade where he honors Mordecai, goes to the house in shame with his head covered, not his face, his head. And she too shoot. She changes her tune where she had said, Hey, if he bothers you, build a big pole and hang him on it in the morning. Then go to the feast and have a good time. But later that day, she said, If this Mordecai whom you've begun to fall in front of is of the Jews, 
putting all this together, then I think your doom is imminent. She used the word fall. Right here, Haman was falling on the couch. It's an interesting nuanced word, but I think if we were Hebrew, we would know that word connects the two together. She'd already read the future, it seems. He's now falling. But what's also interesting is what the king says when he sees this. Now, there's rules, and I don't know the Persian rules as to what you do when a woman's in the room, and if she's sitting, do you stand? If she comes in, do you stand? If you're sitting, it might be kind of like the Queen of England. You don't just say, uh, can you scoot over if she's on the couch (laughs) and there's not enough room for you? So if he's begging for his life, which he's probably doing as a pathetic man who should be at the king's feet, not the queen's feet, it provides a quite a unique situation for the king to capitalize on. His words were, will you assault the queen in my presence in my own house? Now we have to try to think, put ourselves in Haman's position. In his position, he's already said he sees in the king's eyes that harm is against him. And he's begging for his life. Do you think that to hurt the queen? And actually, the word has a sexual reference to it. The word out of the king's mouth. Would that even be on Haman's radar to do something like that at that moment? No. But in the position the king finds him, it might just work. Now remember, this man had lied about the Jews in order to kill Mordecai. And it looks like the king is now about to lie about Haman in order to get rid of him. All it has to do is be plausible. I mean, you don't just walk into a room and say, oh, you're going to assault my queen in front of me in my house and the guards not immediately go into action. That's the way it is said. As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. And that's a creepy and scary type of language, isn't it? It's ironic enough that the one who had sought unknowingly to take the queen's life now begs her to save his own. That's how this is working. He'd written her death warrant, but now he's begging for his life. But in the begging itself and the way he went about it, that was what sealed his faith. Certainly he had not assaulted her, but the king had no problem lying to get rid of a traitor, no more than Haman had a problem lying to get rid of Mordecai. So point number three, Haman is hanged. Point number one, Esther comes clean. Number two, the king takes a walk. Number three, Haman is hanged. And at point where you think, well, that was awful, escalated quickly, now seems to be resolved. It's not over yet. Look at verse 9. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman had prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. Now, there's a lot of information in there. It's not just, oh yeah, the the gallows that Haman made to kill Mordecai. It's Mordecai whose word saved the king. 
So everybody in the room at the, at the moment knows this is the guy who tried to kill the one who saved the king's life. Even more so, this man is worthless to the king. And then it's when the king says, hang him on that. And don't you, there's another piece of information we didn't know. Haman built the gallows or the pole in his own yard. So he and his family can watch 75 feet high. This man impaled on a stake. A gruesome, awful spectacle. That's where he's going to die. At his own house in front of his own family. In one of the most horrific reversals known to Scripture. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king was abated. The king cooled off, but only after this man was gone. So what do we do with this? What's in this for me? Or uh, as Lon Solomon used to say, so what? He'd have the whole congregation say it at the same time. That's where you go from what was in the Bible to what should be, what is now. Wasness to isness. Well, there's a number of themes in here that we could spend hours on. And one we've seen over and over again, uh, most uh, visibly in the previous chapter, and that's the sovereignty of God. Uh, A lot of these things in the book can be credited to the action of those involved, but a few of them cannot be credited to anybody, and chance would be an awful thing to credit it to. Chance is not a thing, and this is beyond chance. The king's insomnia was the hinge on which everything turned. Esther could not control that. Though she did a masterful job here in chapter 7, she couldn't control that. God's sovereignty is seen all over the world. In every, again, there is no such thing as one maverick molecule in God's universe. But then again, He expects our obedience. So, Over against the sovereignty of God, we have the responsibility of man. And we see Esther take responsibility. And this is one of those mysteries in Scripture that we just have to be comfortable looking at as a mystery. We'll never solve this riddle. Because sliding the emphasis to one side or the other introduces problems. If we want to say that most of this is on us... Uh, just use uh, the role of a pastor as an example. There comes a point where he realizes his cleverness, his storytelling, his delivery, uh, his presence in the pulpit is just not enough and certainly not what he wants to consider what life or death hinges on. If this sermon's a dud then uh, does someone slip into hell? They just won't know it until 30 years from now? No. It's God who opens the eyes and softens the heart. All the pastor has to do is bust it straight down the middle, be true to the text. The Word has its witness. The Holy Spirit takes it from there. Now, if you want to say that it's all sovereignty, you can find yourself sitting under a lazy pastor who thinks that God's just going to 
bless people's hearts as they're put to sleep with dry, passionless, irresponsible sermons. You need them both. Same as the salvation process. Uh, It looks as if before the foundation of the world, we were chosen by God for His purpose and His glory. That's what the Bible says. And then Jesus Christ, God's Son, looks into the eyes of Nicodemus and says, You must be born again. It's both. You've got to believe. If you don't believe, you're condemned already. If you do believe, there's no condemnation. So it shouldn't surprise us that what we see in Romans and the Gospels is the same in the book of Esther. You've got human responsibility and divine sovereignty. They're both there. But there's two more themes that, we, that are, are new to this installment here. And one is wrath. Now, the king's been mad before, but not like this. And that wrath didn't result in basically instant death, instant karma, as some might want to look at it if they cut God out of the picture. But what I want to bring to light here in the what's in this for me is the idea of the right of a king to be angry when he's sinned against. Nobody in Persia would begrudge this king his own anger when he's been made to look the fool by a man who's killing an entire people group because of a grudge against a single person. But that's a pagan king, right? He's just Xerxes, the most important man on the planet way back then. Somebody walking around today is the most important man on the planet now. There'll always be one. But when you say that's vastly different than the true God, God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the creator of the world, who sent his son to die, now he's going to judge righteously, right? Uh, David and Seth and I on Wednesday mornings have our devotions. Doesn't happen every week because sometimes we're here, there, or somewhere else. Most weeks. We're studying uh, gentle and lowly. Uh, Some of our deacons have a copy of that. And one of the chapters we looked at last week talked about God's anger over against his compassion. You see both of them in the life of Jesus, how he could have compassion unlike any person alive because he can actually see wrong and misfortune more clearly than the rest of us whose sin nature allows us for some reason to think that we're better and don't deserve being miserable. And by the same token, anger is the same. That if ever there was a case for the perfect use of anger, it would be the one who's never sinned, who could look at wrong and be righteously mad about it. We can't do that because sometimes the stuff we get the most mad about really doesn't matter. It's just the way we would prefer something rather than it being right or wrong. If we adopt 
the culture's understanding of this God of love that loves so much that even he can overlook things that he has said in the past is wrong. So we can get on the right side of history and all these types of things and just cherry pick our way through the scriptures because his love covers the multitude of sins. That would be to teach a false gospel. You can't sweep sin under the rug when you're the righteous God of the universe. It has to be dealt with because sin is an affront to his glory. He promised if you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And unless something else happens, someone's going to die. Right? I wish it were different. But I can't say any different than it is said in the scriptures. And if we don't believe that they're true, we are our most miserable people here dressed up for nothing. Now, if you read a little further here, where I think the story gets creepy is the, the theme of death. Because it, it, it comes in like the uh, image of that cloaked, faceless being with the sickle in its hand from all the bad movies. I mean, he's there on the spot. They cover the man's face. Why do they cover the man's face? Because beholding the face of the king is a privilege. The closer you are to the king, the more important you are. And we see this even now. We watch movies, executions, they always put the black bag over your head. But in this case, his face is covered. He can't see the king, and the king can't see his face. Which is a way of saying, you've lost the privilege of the king's face. And even more dramatic than this, in this story, someone had to die for the king's wrath to be abated. And in the grand story of the Bible, after Genesis 3, there's only one thing that stays the wrath of holy God against sin bound in every heart of every human being and that was the death of his son on the cross in their place should they believe it in faith. That turns the wrath of God. Wrath of God flamed, absolutely, but on his son instead of you or me. In this way, these stories are remarkably similar. God's plan of redemption, Jesus had to die to turn away his father's wrath. So either way you look at the world as random chance where you do your best to get by and really everything's just kind of a gamble and there really is tragedy and there really is pain and we really do want to see if we can minimize that the best of our ability. Or we take the Bible at its word that we were created, sinned against God, his wrath that was promised abides on us, but sent his son to take that wrath on himself. And then our relationship is clear. And we've been adopted. And really it's only a matter of time before we're back in the garden the way it started when God said everything was good. 
But in his Bible, he uses stories like this with Esther. Shows us these themes through the likes of powerful and misbehaving men to show us the truth and to help us see clearly. And my prayer this morning is that if you hear the voice of God, don't harden your heart. Haman seemed to goner. You wonder, you, you could have fallen on your face. You could have kissed the king's feet, something. Your problem was with the king. And so is ours. But Jesus saves. And that by the request of his own father. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this story. We thank you for its truth. We thank you for these themes that get us thinking. Lord, we thank you for the, the very basis for, for you to introduce to us our need for a Savior. Lord, help us to open our eyes. Lord, would you soften our heart. So badly we want to fix all this on our own. And make rules that seem to fit. And take the idea of kindness into our own hands. Lord, help us to realize that this world doesn't work with sin. You went to great lengths and great cost to remove it. But it's on your terms. It's by your grace. Lord, we thank you for the truth of the Old Testament, the New Testament, your Bible. Seal it to our hearts. Give us a way to tell others about it. And Lord, may you provide through pleasure or pain the resources we need to be useful to you in your business of saving souls. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.